Today we study someone who saw that same light and it affected their life in enormous ways. And if you haven't realized it yet, it also affected yours. If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to where we find ourselves in the book of Acts chapter 9. Uh, If you remember, we've been steadily going through there. We've seen some different caricatures of people that Luke has painted for us. And today we come to what may may very well be the most pivotal passage in the entire book of Acts, at least as far as the developing story goes. Today we look at the section where the most ardent opposition to the gospel becomes the most influential proponent of the gospel. And this is obviously the conversion of Saul to the Apostle Paul here. Now, again, I use those names. You're going to see in chapter 13, Paul's name isn't changed from Saul to Paul because of his conversion. It actually, he's known by both names. He's known by Saul in his Hebrew circles. He's known by Paul in his Roman circles and as he's dealing with Gentiles. And so since he becomes the Apostle to the Gentiles, you know him as the Apostle Paul more so after you get past chapter 13. And actually before, 13 and before, even though he's already converted, he's still called Saul all the way through chapter 13. So again, we're going to use the term Saul here because that's what Luke is using, but we're also referring to the Apostle Paul here. Now, let's look at the conversion of Saul here. This is what we have here in chapter 9. Look at verse 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Luke starts off here reminding us of what Saul has been doing to the church thus far. He has been breathing out murderous threats to this new group of people that are beginning to emerge from Judaism, these ones who are following Christ, these ones who are the disciples of Jesus. Paul doesn't want to have anything to do with this. He believes this is heresy, and so he's breathing out these murderous threats. He's wanting to get all the permissions that he needs to go after these people wherever he can find them, men or women, to bind them and bring them back to Jerusalem, to stand trial for their heresy. Now, what's amazing in our passage next week, you're going to see that after Paul goes through his conversion, um, what you see is the, the text actually says that the church endures a time of peace. Now, that tells you right there, one man gets converted and the entire church has a time of peace. That tells you how influential this man really was. Now, look at verse 2. Verse 2 tells us about the tenacity at which Paul was going about this vitriol towards the church. We know from the previous studies that we've had thus far that the persecution of the church began in Jerusalem. Of course, that's where the church really was birthed with Pentecost happening there. Um, The apostles were all gathered there after the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, and then he told them to stay until they received the Holy Spirit. That's what happened at Pentecost. And then we've been watching some of these things unfold that come out of Jerusalem. But we saw one specifically, which was the stoning of Stephen. He becomes the first martyr of the church, at least that we are told about. And this begins the process of many early believers beginning to flee Jerusalem and going to other areas because they're running away from this persecution. We followed one of them in the person of Philip, not the apostle, disciple, Philip. Philip, we're talking about the one who was, he was actually a convert to to, um, Christianity. He was a Hellenistic Jew. Uh, And so this is one of the early believers, one of the early converts. And he takes the gospel to Samaria and has incredible, incredible success at seeing so many of the Samaritans come to faith in Jesus Christ. So 
this persecution was driving people out, causing people to flee from Jerusalem, going outside of the city. But this also led to the gospel becoming more and more prominent in places outside of Jerusalem. Now it would seem that Saul is not content with just eradicating Christianity from Jerusalem. No, he wants to see the end of this heresy spreading among his people. And so he wants to go and tackle it wherever he can find it. So Paul requests and secures permission to go after them wherever they may be. I don't know if you noticed it in the text or not, but it actually says, if I find anybody there, can I bring them back? So, I mean, he's not even going like, I know exactly who I'm looking for. He's just like, I've heard, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to look. And if I find them, I want everything I need to bind them, to drag them back, to lead them back to Jerusalem so that they can stand trial for this heresy that they have been putting on our people. He wants to bring them back, bound, back to Jerusalem. Keep that in the back of your mind because that plays out in our text. So between verse 2 and verse 3, Luke has this little bit of a play on words. Look at verse 2. It says, and he asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to, what does it say? The way. Yes, the way. And look at verse 3. Now, as he went on his way. Now, again, let me just remind you that the early church, the earliest um, term that they used to refer to themselves was the way. That was before they were ever called Christians. Later on, they were called Christians. That was actually to make fun of them. The word Christian means little Christ. And they were all trying to say, well, we want to be like Christ. And they're like, oh, isn't that cute? They're trying to be little Christ. So they started calling them Christians to make fun of them. They embraced this, and this term became what we're known as today. And so we kind of embraced this, and we're known as Christians. But the earliest believers were not known as Christians. They were known as people of the way. That was the way. That was what they actually gave to themselves, and probably the reason that they used this was because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So these were people who were finding their way through Jesus Christ, finding their way to salvation, finding their way to be made right before God again, finding their way in life, what their purpose was. So they became known as the people of the way. Now, the reason I say Luke does a little play on words here is because he was going after people of the way, notice in your text there that it's capitalized, and it says that Paul went on his way. Now, oftentimes in life, we will find ourselves in that same predicament. There is the way that God has for us, and there are our ways. There are the ways that God wants us to walk, and sometimes they don't look like they're appropriate for us in the sense that, hey, I would be better designed for this. I feel more comfortable for this. I feel more prepared or more called for this. And God goes, that's not what I have for you. I have this for you. What happens a lot of times is we determine our way, and then we just ask God to bless it. Lord, this is what I've come up with. This is what I want to do. This is what I've studied. This is where I want to go. This is how I want to do it. Now, Lord, bless what I want to do. And I think there's always this difference that's pulling at us, and there is always the way, and there's your way. And I think Paul, on this point, think about it, he's going his way. He's going his way with great intention. He's going his way with great conviction. He believes he's doing God's will, but it's his way. It's not the way. And I think the warning for all of us is to always examine why you're doing what you're doing. Always examine what, what the basis is making your decisions really becomes. Because there is the way and there is God's way. 
And you want to make sure that you're found on God's way. I'm sorry, I said that backwards. There's the way, which is God's way, and then there's your way, which is really a lot of times where our passions drive us. Do you see when we ask God to just bless our way, what we're really doing is taking the place of God because we've determined where our path is. We've determined what we want to do with our lives. We determine where we want to give ourselves and then God just bless our efforts here. But truthfully, we have to come before the Lord and say, Lord, I know what I want to do. I know what I would do in this situation. I know what my passions and desires are. I know where I feel more comfortable, but God, I am just a vessel for you. I am your servant. Whatever you want me to do, that's where I will go. Why do we say that? Because so many times in Scripture, don't we find that God calls people to places they don't feel comfortable? God calls people to people they don't feel comfortable around. God calls people to places and things and situations where it's not where they feel comfortable, where they feel most blessed, where they feel most prepared. Why? Because God wants us to depend on Him. And so that's where we find the way. And I think Luke is intentional in the way that he crafts this. Look how it continues in verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, right there, there is so much that we could focus in on. I mean, there's so many different ways that you could go with this. There's this light that comes from heaven in the story. Now, again, I want you to picture this. Damascus is a week's journey away from Jerusalem by foot. Okay? And we're assuming Paul has his entourage. That's probably how they're traveling. So he's been traveling for six days going to this place. He finally arrives at the city. And as he's about to go into the city, now again, let me just let's point back to traditions of the ancient Near East. Most of the time when you're journeying, you're going to set your journey to make sure you arrive at that city, not at nighttime, but during the day. The reason is people are very suspicious of people who come into cities at nighttime. Why? Because you can't be seen. Um, why are you coming in under the cover of dark? So most of the time they want to come in during the light. Why? Because number one, they want to see people, usually the city fathers, those who govern the city, they're on the outside. Any uh, trading of currency or anything, uh, supplies that need to be bought usually are gathered around those city entrances. So we would assume, number one, that this is the middle of the day when they are walking into the city. And in the middle of the day, with the sun in the sky, they see a light that is so bright that immediately he falls to the ground. It says he falls to the ground before he even hears this voice. That's how intimidating this light must have been. Our question must be, what is this light? What is it that Paul actually saw? We know that there was this heavenly light that was accompanied by this voice. Paul has stopped short of the city just before finishing his journey. And remember what he's going to do. He's going there to gather up men and women of the way to bind them and to lead them back to Jerusalem. Now, all of a sudden, with one moment, with one bright shining light from the sky, ultimately from heaven, all of a sudden, he becomes the condemned, and he becomes the one in prison, and he becomes the one who's being led into a city. What did Paul exactly see here? Well, let's hear from Paul himself what he says that he saw. And again, you're going to see the connection here from some of his writings later on. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. 
Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Look at what he says next. Have I not, what does he say? Seen Jesus our Lord. So Paul claims to have seen Jesus himself. What is he referring to? Most scholars believe he's referring back here to his conversion. He saw Jesus. You're going to see why in just a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, what does Paul say? Last of all, as to one untimely born, he's not talking about his physical birth, he's talking about his spiritual birth and how it was like unexpected completely, he appeared also to me. So Paul says that Jesus appeared to him at the time of his birth. What's the time of his birth? He's talking about his road, uh, his trip there to Damascus. So again, Paul claims that he's seen Jesus. Jesus appeared to him. So this bright light, Paul sees Jesus. In verse 4, there's a question that's presented to Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to there is the double naming of Saul. Saul, Saul. Why? Because immediately, if you're a study of Scripture, you go back to some of the things you studied, that reminds you of God's calling of other people, doesn't it? Uh, if you remember, God called Moses the same way from the burning bush. Moses, Moses. Uh, also, you remember Samuel, the prophet, when he was called, um, he said, Samuel, Samuel. He did that several times because Samuel kept thinking somebody else was talking to him. He didn't realize that it was God. Also, when you look at that, Saul doesn't realize who he's talking to. Moses doesn't realize who is talking to him because when he's told, hey, I want you to go to your people, he says, who, who, who am I supposed to tell them is sending me? Who are you? What is your name? And God tells him his holy name. Samuel doesn't know who's talking to him. Uh, he keeps going back to Eli and saying, hey, what did you want? No, I, I didn't ask you. I didn't call you. Yeah, you called me in the dark. He didn't know God was talking to him. So it's amazing. Every time you see that, that double mention of the name, it's God calling someone who doesn't recognize immediately who it is that's calling them, but he's calling them for this incredible purpose that's a kingdom purpose, every single one of them. So it's like this really transformative time that God is calling them. So we see that here again with Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And next what we hear are the only words that Saul utters in the entire first part of the book of Acts. Did you know that? Even though we've already been mentioning him, he hasn't said anything yet. We've been told a lot of things that he's doing, but the only quote we get from Saul is, who are you, Lord? And you know what? After he utters those words, we never hear from Paul again until chapter 13. Doesn't say anything else. He is silenced by this encounter with Jesus to the degree that we don't hear from him for a while. So think about this. There are two questions in this passage. There's one answer and there's one directive. There are some things I think that are quite powerful in this passage. Number one, there's a lot of similarities uh, in the calling of Saul and the calling of Moses. Moses sees a light, right? It's this burning bush. He notices it because it's burning, but it's not being consumed. Paul sees this light as well. Paul hears a voice coming from the light. Moses hears a voice coming from this burning bush. Both of them recognize the holiness, the ground that they're standing on. There's something significant, something holy, something divine. Both of them fall to their feet. Um, Moses is told even to take off his shoes. He's on holy ground. So again, there's this picture of the presence of God there with both of them. Both of them respond with questions. Um, uh, Saul asked this question, realizing, who, who are you? 
uh, Moses asks the same question, who are you? And then God begins to unfold to both of them the purpose that he has prepared them for, that he's going to take them on this journey to use them in this powerful way. So again, there's a lot of similarities that we have. We have a lot of similarities to the story of Jonah. Do you remember Jonah, the prophet, who God called to go to um, Nineveh? Where did he want to go? You know where Paul's from? Same place. So again, so there's this place that he wants to go, and he, he, he's like, I'm not, I'm not going there. I'm not going to Nineveh. I'll, take, I'll buy one ticket to not Nineveh. That's, a, that's what I want. Just put me down for that, and I'll go anywhere except there, because he didn't want to go and do this. And what ends up happening? Of course, the storm comes. He's thrown into the water. What comes up and gets him? A whale, and he is in darkness for three days and three nights, and then the whale spits him out on land. Um, and then uh, what we see with Paul, three days and three nights, he's blinded, and then the scales fall from his eyes. Again, almost a picture of scales with a fish, even though a whale doesn't have fish, but there's the same kind of picture there. We don't know exactly what kind of fish it was that swallowed Jonah. It doesn't say well, just as a great fish. Uh, so there's a lot of similarities between these stories, and I think that the author is intending for us to see these similarities and these connections, that this is the work of God. Jesus it identifies with our sufferings, one thing this passage teaches us. What does he say? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people, my disciples, my apostles? He says, why are you persecuting me? Again, it's a reminder that the church is the body of Christ that we literally live and breathe as his representation in the world. And you know what's beautiful in this? If you take nothing else, take this, that God takes it personally when people attack us. He does. He takes it personally. You say, well, you know what? I've been attacked for a long time. I've stood for the Lord. I've stood for the moral morality of Scripture and what God calls us to and that kind of right living, and I've been persecuted for it, and it never seems like God stands up for me at all. Well, I want to remind you in this passage, Stephen dies. Philip's been run out of the city. Lots of people have begun to lose their lives. They've begun persecution, and God didn't step in in every situation. But what we know is that God settles his accounts. He's not like a credit card. He don't settle them every 30 days, but God always settles his accounts. And you can always know that anything that's done to you because of your faith and being obedient to Jesus, Jesus takes that personally. Why do you persecute me? And notice in this passage also that Paul has no words to combat this revelation of Jesus. He doesn't go in and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, you say that you're this and you're that. Let's go to the old. Nope, he doesn't say a word. He is in the presence of the divine and he knows it. The only thing he can utter is a question, which is, who are you, Lord? Lord, I know that you're bigger than I am. I know that you're greater than I am. I know that you're more powerful. I can feel it. I sense it in this moment. This is a divine moment. Who are you, Lord? If you really think about it, the simple response of Jesus actually refutes everything that Paul has been claiming and fighting with the church about, and the response of Jesus also affirms everything that these early believers have been claiming. He says, I am, number one, who is the great I am? God. I am Jesus, who have the early believers been proclaiming is God? Jesus. I am Jesus, the one you 
not have been or did, but are persecuting. So what does that mean? Number one, he recognizes that this is the Lord talking to him. Who is the Lord? It's Jesus. What does that mean? Jesus is Lord. What else does that mean? He's alive. What else does that mean? Hey, this light is a heavenly light coming from heaven. He must be reigning in heaven on glory. These are all the things that the early disciples were preaching. Hey, Jesus came and he died and he rose again and he's still alive. And we saw him ascend into heaven and he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And this is what Paul was going around going, this is heresy. This isn't true. God, Jesus is not the son of God. He did not rise from the dead. He is not reigning in heaven. And with one sentence, Jesus refutes everything that Paul's been arguing and sits him down, silence. Paul had claimed that the gospel was a blasphemous lie, and yet Jesus proves to him just by one encounter that he is the way, the truth, and the life. In one experience, one question, one response, Paul lost every debate that had fueled his hatred towards the early church. Who are you? I am Jesus the one that you are persecuting. Look how it continues in verse seven. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but, what does it say? Seeing no one. Why would it say they saw no one? Because that would indicate that Paul did see someone. Okay, so that's the, that's the connection that we have there. Even though it doesn't say Paul saw Jesus specifically from Paul's own testimony, Jesus appeared to him when? At his spiritual birth. And what does it say here? They heard a voice but saw no one, which would mean Paul heard the voice and saw someone. Look at verse 8. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drink. Verse 7, I think, is the indication that Paul did see Jesus, but his traveling companions did not. And don't miss the irony of verse 8. Saul came to Damascus to do what? To lead away the blasphemous and blind Christians. Paul now is blind, and he's the one who's having to be led as a prisoner of darkness into the city. So, when we meet Jesus, we meaning us personally, you know what? We have a similar experience. We come to the end of ourselves just like Saul came to the end of himself. The end of our self-made identities, the end of our self-made wisdom. See, he thought he had it all figured out. He thought he was on God's side. He thought he was doing God's will, but he comes to the end of that when he meets God. He thought in his own mind that this was who he was, that he was the best person to come and persecute these Christians, to silence this heresy. But when he comes face to face to Jesus, he loses that identity. That's what happens whenever we face God is we lose ourselves in the process. And that sounds like a bad thing? No, it's a great thing because we find a new identity in Christ, an identity that we were born for, the identity that God created us to live within, the identity that brings us the peace and the contentment and the joy that God wants all of us to have. I think verse 9 is a very strong picture of death, but not just death, it's a picture of death and burial after death. Why? He is for three days, not only blind, but what else does it say? Without food or water. So no food, no water, and he's in darkness. Remind you of anything? 
Yeah, Jesus, when he dies on the cross, he's buried in the tomb. And he doesn't drink water, eat food. Why? Because he is physically dead. Where is he? He's in the tomb. They've rolled the stone in front of it. It is completely dark. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment because we're all familiar with Paul's teachings, right? Many of us have memorized many of the words that he's given to us so poetically and so stirring for our souls to understand what it means to have life in Christ. But now that you have fresh in your mind this picture of Saul's conversion, I want you to hear some of Paul's teaching in light of that and see if you agree with me in the sense that he has to be thinking about his own conversion when he says these things. Uh, Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul talks about we used to be this one way and we died and right on the flip side of that, we're living a different life. Is he giving us theology or is he telling us about his own experience? I think it's both. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What happens here? He's brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Romans 6, 18. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. What does God call him to do? Calls him to do the will that he has for him. You're going to be my ambassador to the Gentiles, and you're going to suffer greatly Because of this, he becomes a slave to righteousness. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is he not talking about his own conversion experience here? Yes. He's not just sharing theology. He's telling you about his own experience. And friends, I want you to know that's the greatest thing that you can share with anyone else. Not great theology, but theology that matches your own experience. That you have a conversion experience where you once walked in darkness, but now you're in light. Where you once lived according to your own self-made identities, and now you've accepted your identity in Christ. Where you once lived life according to your own wisdom and just kind of asked God to bless that. Now you live by faith in the Son of God, letting him direct you and guide you in the ways of righteousness. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it leads to difficult circumstances. But you know God is always faithful, and the testimony just keeps pouring out of your life when this is our calling, when this is our pursuit. The raging persecutor has been brought low. How has he been brought low? By a simple question and a simple answer. His blindness is a picture of the condition of his life, contrary to what he believed about himself. For three days he was dead, the old life was expiring, and now a new life was about to emerge. Listen again to what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Is that just good theology or was that his own experience? And I would argue that is his own experience. That's what he's talking about here. Now, look back at our text here in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Again, very reminiscent of other encounters when God calls Abraham, here am I. When he calls Moses, here am I. When he calls Samuel, 
here am I. Again, there's connections back to these other stories. But I think there's something else significant here is understanding that Ananias is just a simple person. He's not a priest. He's not connected to the priesthood in any way. He is a Hellenistic Jew, for all we know, living in Damascus, and we believe that he's been here for a long time. Like, he's not one that's fled there because of persecution. Maybe someone who fled there from persecution shared it with him, and he's just a believer. God chose this ordinary individual guy to be significant in the story of Saul. Look how it continues in verse 11. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. By the way, really was a street called straight. Matter of fact, you can still go there today. It's still there and it's still straight. All right. So rise and go to the street called straight and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying as he has seen in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his strength. So we're told of a second vision that Paul has. Paul's been praying and now he's had a vision while he's praying of a man named Ananias who comes into the room where he is sitting there praying and the man lays hands on him. And when he lays hands on him and prays for him, his sight is restored. This is a vision that Paul has in this this, um, prayer time that he has. And now God has given a vision to Ananias. So there's three visions in this text right here, right? The first one Paul has, apparently he's had one while he's praying, and now God has given a vision to Ananias. And now all of this begins to come together. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus, as he appears to Ananias in this vision, he tells him to seek out Saul. How beautiful that is. Now, think about this. Jesus has already appeared to Saul. Jesus has already said, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting me? That's my people. That's the body of Christ. You're persecuting me when you're doing what you're doing. And, and, And Paul or Saul at this time, Jesus could have very easily said, now go and just be my disciple. Okay, go, turn around and go back and reverse the things that you're gonna... But now he, instead, what does Jesus do? He creates this little like encounter. And he ends up bringing Saul in and Saul goes to this house and he can't see and he's been brought low and he has this great need and he doesn't know what's going to happen. And he's been overwhelmed. He's not eating. He's not drinking. He can't see. He's in darkness. And all the while, while Saul is feeling the weight of all of this on him, God goes over here and talks to this other guy, who's just average guy in Damascus. And he says, hey, Uh, Do you know a guy by the name of Saul? He's from Tarsus. Uh, He's in the area. (laughs) And nice, you're going to see his men. It's going like, uh, I know exactly who you're talking about. I've I've heard all about him. Hey, well, he's waiting on you because he has this vision while he's praying that you're going to come in. He can't see, but um, you're going to go in. You're going to pray for him so that he can see and so his sight can be restored. Do you see how God is creating this encounter of human beings? He doesn't just step in and redirect Paul on his own to become the missionary to the Gentiles. No, he instead brings this guy in and then picks this ordinary individual that just happens to be living in this area who is a believer, and he says, you know what? I want you to go and pray for this guy. This is my will. This is how it's going to unfold. I want y'all to minister to each other. That's how I'm going to bring him in. Saul is praying, Ananias. Saul is waiting on you, Ananias. I told him that you're coming in a vision. 
I told him that you would help him to see again. Wow, what, what an incredible picture of the Great Commission. We've been called to take the gospel to the lost and the dying. It's the heart of evangelism right here in this passage. It's the call and the power of the gospel. And I often wonder so many times, under great conviction in my own life, how many people are out there waiting for me to respond to God's call and prompting in my life? How many people am I in contact with day in and day out that I have the opportunity to share the greatest story known to mankind, and yet I'm not listening and I'm not obedient? That's the way God designed it to happen, for us to take this life-giving message to other people that they may hear. And you know what a lot of times we do? They don't deserve that. Lord, don't you know who that is? That, that person is way beyond. They're not going to listen to me. They hate me. And so we make up all these excuses of why we shouldn't be the ones to take the gospel. Look what happens in verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. He's not worthy. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. That's me, and you're sending me right into the line of fire. Saul's reputation obviously preceded him, and somehow Ananias even had been told about why Saul was there in Damascus to begin with. Isn't it funny sometimes how we feel like we need to explain things to God? God's like, hey, there's this guy named Saul of Tarsus, and, and he's blind, and I want you to go pray for him. Hey, God, do you know who that is? No, no I had no idea. Like, well, can you tell me? Well, he's, you know, he's been doing a lot of evil stuff. Really? Are you serious? Yeah, I mean, like, he's, he's been threatening people left and I don't know if you know this or not, but, like, he's come here to, like, arrest people and take them. You're kidding me. Well, you know what? Scratch the whole thing then. I had no idea. Thank you so much for enlightening me to this situation. No, we know. But how often do we do that? How often do we, like, well, God, do you know the whole situation? Do you really know what's going on here? Do you know that person? Yes, God knows what he's doing. And he's looking for people who will just be obedient and trust Look at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So think about this for a moment. He's telling Ananias, who's not a priest, who's not like the head of the Sanhedrin, he's not even affiliated with the lead of his local synagogue. He's just a normal person. And he's saying, Ananias... He's seen you. He's waiting for you to take this to him, to come to him, to pray for him, to heal him. I want to use you to bring healing to this guy, and then I'm going to take this guy, and I'm going to change the world, Ananias. And I want you to be a part of it. I want you to go and be a part of this story. Had Ananias not gone, he had never had his claim to fame right here in the scripture. We'd never hear from him again. But yes, he becomes obedient. Maybe because of the last part where he goes, he's going to have to suffer greatly for my name. All right, well, that sounds fair. Let's go. So here we go, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I want you to pay attention to that for a moment because that seems to be a direct fulfillment of something Jesus said that Luke uh, includes in his gospel. Luke chapter 21, verse 12. But before all this... They will lay their hands on you and persecute you. This is Jesus talking to his followers. Delivering you up to the synagogue and prisons. 
and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. So he's preaching this. This is long before Saul ever comes into the story. He's probably a little toddler at this point, maybe a young teenager or preteen when Jesus says this. Okay? Now, he doesn't know this, but he actually lives this prophecy out that Jesus gives. Because it's going to be Paul who stands before rulers like Felix and Festus in chapters 24 and 25. It's going to be Paul who stands before King Agrippa in chapters 26. It's Paul who every time he goes into a city goes first to the local synagogue and he is thrown out. He is beaten. One time he's stoned half to death. Even Paul will stand before the Sanhedrin. The one thing that he used to aspire to be a part of, no, he'll be on the other side standing, giving witness to Jesus Christ to those who would condemn him in chapter 23. Verse 15 is closely linked to verse 16. Paul would suffer for the name of Christ. The greatest persecutor is going to become one of the most greatly persecuted. And as we're going to see in the next text, you know where Paul's persecution is going to begin? In Damascus and Jerusalem. The two places mentioned in this, what happens is after he regains his sight, he begins to go to the synagogue and he begins to talk and preach to the Hellenistic Jews in Damascus and they want to kill him. And so they finally have to let him out of the city, they have to lower him over the wall, like hide him and get him out of there. He runs to Jerusalem. He is not accepted by the apostles immediately. They're all scared of him because they think this is the same Saul that's been breathing out these murderous threats. And so finally Barnabas helps him and they end up taking him back to Tarsus because um, he, he, no one's going to accept him. The persecution is growing in those two places that he came from. Saul loses everything. In this encounter, everything. He loses his identity. He loses his power. He loses his position. He loses what he thought his life was all about, the direction it was going to take, what he had to offer. He loses his credibility. He loses his goals and dreams for his life. Oh, but he gains so much more. He comes to the end of himself here, but he gains an incredible new personality and person. He is a new life in Christ. Look how it continues in verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he, what does it say? He rose and he was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. So here's the beauty of God's design. Notice that Jesus speaks to two different individuals, Saul and Ananias. Then he brings them together for each other's edification and for the mission of the church. I'm going to use you to bless him, and I'm going to use him to bless the Gentiles and so many more. What an incredible picture of transformation. Think about again what, what, what Luke tells us about Paul's experience here. He was dead for three days. He was in darkness. He didn't eat. He didn't drink. Now, all of a sudden, he's alive. He sees. He's eating. He's drinking. Notice that Luke uses the word, after this happened, he rose. That's not an accident. That's intentional. And this is why Paul, later on his theology, says, as we identify with Christ in his death, so also will we identify with Christ in his resurrection because he rose literally from the dead 
as Jesus did, figuratively, Paul, Saul here in this passage, rises from the dead and now has new life in Christ. And then again, as we've seen so many times in the book of Acts, the emphasis of baptism. Now, listen, I'm not going to go off on a tangent here. I know there's people in here come from all different backgrounds, different denominations, but let me just emphasize one thing for your consideration, and that is as you go through the book of Acts, there are two things that are 100% consistent and you find no variation. Number one, people are baptized after they confess Jesus Christ as Lord. You never see it in any other way. They don't ever get baptized before confessing Jesus as Lord. Number a second part of that, number one, would be this. You always see this baptism following this conversion. Why? Because it's a picture of death, burial, and resurrection or identifying with Christ. Which brings me to my second point. Notice that every time, without fail, the mode of baptism is immersion. There's never any other mode. You don't find it anywhere. Every time they are baptized, they go underwater and they come back out of the water, which is why we practice that here at Mars Hill because we have this great conviction. Now, again, I know there's difference of opinions throughout denominations. People point to church history or, or whatever it may be, but the truth of it is you cannot argue with the fact that the book of Acts, as the church begins, that is the only way and mode of baptism. And the reason I put that out there for you is not to say, ha ha, I know better than you do. It's more of saying, like, what is the point of baptism except to be this milestone for us? And many times, I'll just tell you from my own experience, there are times when I walk through incredible valleys of doubt in my life. Even while being a preacher, I've walked through great valleys of doubt. And sometimes the only thing I had to hold on to was the time when I was baptized, and I remember how strongly I believed I believe so strongly that I was willing to walk into those waters in front of so many people and go under the water and come back out. And I remembered what it was a picture of, and I remember the conviction with which I did that. And sometimes that was what got me through those seasons of doubt and darkness until I could walk out the other side of that. I'm telling you, it becomes this incredible milestone in your life to point to this transformation that happens in your heart when you believe. Now, again, I don't know where you are in your journey, but I would just take that and give that to you, and I pray that you would just consider that and reflect on that. Maybe that's something you need to follow through with to make that milestone uh, cemented in your own experience, in your own life. And the last verses that we have for the text today are verse 19 through 22. In taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. I want you to pay attention to, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon this name? And he is not, and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength, this new life in Christ, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus with this new wisdom by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, again, I want, you to point, I want to point you back to verse 20. It says that he began immediately, okay, not didn't wait a long time, immediately he went in and he began to preach Jesus as, did you notice the word there, son of God? Did you notice that's the only time in the book of Acts that that title shows up? The only time he's ever called the son of God. Why? Because it's not significant to the theology that's built upon a book of Acts, 
but go start reading Paul's letters. And oh, does Paul build it up? Yes, he centers all of his theology around the idea of Jesus being the Son of God. And so I think Luke gives play to that here, talking about this is where, where Paul came from. Why? What was Paul doing? How was he doing this? How was he coming together and bringing this together? Well, notice again it says there that he was proving that Jesus was the Christ. Did you see that? The word proving there, the actual word in the Greek, is a word that means to piece together. Well, let's take for a moment, who is Paul? He's a student of Gamaliel. Who is Gamaliel? He was one of the most respected rabbis in that division of Judaism that ever lived. Paul was a direct disciple of him. Paul was aspiring to be just like Gamaliel. What does that mean? He was intelligent. He was smart. He knew the Old Testament better than anybody. He had it memorized. He had arguments. And now all of a sudden with the revelation of Jesus, he now sees the Old Testament in a completely different way. What did he begin to do? He began to piece together all of these things that he'd studied his whole life that it just didn't fit. And now he had the peace that bridged them together. Jesus is the son of God. He is the Messiah who was to come and to free his people. He is better than Moses. He is better than Joshua. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is the one who has come to set his people free. He began to piece this together and prove that Jesus was the Son of God. If you get nothing else out of today, I want you to get this. God had you in mind when he saved Paul. Because you know what? Everything else we've talked about is great theology, great insight into this this story here as it develops. But there's one thing that I want you to get excited about this morning, and that's this. You're a part of this story right here. And Paul actually says it later on. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am. Am the foremost. He says here, I am the foremost. I'm the worst sinner. I'm the chief of sinners. Look at what he says in verse 16. But I received mercy. Why did you receive mercy, Paul? Because you were good enough? Because you were better than everyone else? No. I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. He was so tolerant with me. He put up with me for so long, and he was so good to me that he stepped into my path of destruction and turned me around and gave me life. He gave perfect patience. Why? As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Who is Paul called to? The Gentiles. Me and you would not be standing here today if it weren't for Paul being obedient to the call of Christ. Now, well, God would have used someone else. Yes, I understand all that. Sovereignty of God, yes, he could have used someone else. But here's the thing. The beauty of this story is that Paul was obedient, that immediately he followed through, and he went from a life of knowing it all to being in complete submission to Jesus Christ. And he says, why did God do this? It was not for my benefit. It was for the benefit of others. And we are the recipients of that benefit. The foremost of sinners the patience of Jesus. What does this remind us of? That God can save anyone. You know, you would look at Saul and go, nope, not that guy. We'd be like Ananias. Do uh, you know this guy? I mean, he's been breathing out murderous threats. He is not for us all at all. It's probably a great thing that he's blind. Now he can't find his way around. Man, that's the best thing that could possibly happen to the church. That's what we would reason, wouldn't we? Best thing for this whole thing would be for this guy not to ever see again. 
God goes, you have no idea. This guy seeing is the key to the church exploding. And you know what? All that happens in this passage comes true. Paul becomes a believer. He becomes an apostle to the Gentiles. He does become one of the greatest persecuted of the church to the point that, like I said, he's been stoned to death almost, like just within an inch of his life. He's been beaten, flogged. He's been shipwrecked. I mean, he goes through a litany of his, of his own in one of his books. But you know what's amazing? Paul also found himself in prison a lot. And you know what? He could have been mad about that. He could have been like, you know what? Here, I've given my whole life to you. You know what I've left behind? I've lost everything to follow after you. I've lost what my will was, my goal was, my vision, my ambitions of life. Everything I thought I was, I lost my identity. I lost everything. And and I'm following you, and I'm willing to go, and I want to go to the ends of the earth. I want to take the gospel to Spain. And, And Paul actually did convince himself. He was like, this is what I need to do. I want to take it to the uttermost parts of the world. I'm going to take the gospel to Spain. You know what? He never made it there. Because he found himself in prison, and while he was in prison, he just sat there and just rotted away until they finally beheaded him. Never made it to Spain. But you know what he did while he was in prison? He wrote the majority of your New Testament that you wouldn't have if Paul was not in prison. Paul didn't understand that his greatest ministry was not out on the road. It was actually in the prison. It was how he was going to bless me and you. He had no idea that this would go on for 1,000 years, 2,000 years. He had no idea that there would be believers spreading throughout the entire globe through lands he didn't even know existed. And his greatest ministry was when he was locked in a prison writing these incredible truths that we share and encourage each other with today. You never know what God's doing in the background. You never know what he's doing in that struggle in your life. You never know who he intends to bless through your suffering. It's a beautiful picture of what the gospel can do, the chasms that it can bridge. Don't let this story get away from you. Let it wash over your soul, convict your heart, so that you may know the truth and be set free in this. Amen? Let's pray together. God, what an incredible passage. What a pivotal moment in church history when you save the unsavable. And Lord, the truth is, it's our testimony to none of us are worthy. None of us would ever seek you on our own. Lord, I pray that as the word has been taught, that you would add a blessing to the teaching of your word. Pray that it would convict us and cause us to reflect on what it is to be truly saved, what it is to be a follower of Jesus, and what it is to live the life of kingdom work. Lord, I pray that you would receive all the honor and all the glory and all the blessing that is due to you through the teaching of your word, but more than that, through the obedience of those who are wise enough to hear, to build their house on the solid rock of your word. Lord, may we hear and may we be doers of the word as well. And we ask this in the name that's above every name.